If you've got a Bible, find Matthew chapter 5. That's the beginning of the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels. The four Gospels are, in a lot of ways, the biography of God. The biography of God. It's, it's accounts of eyewitnesses that watched Jesus Christ, the Son of God, preach and teach and heal and then go to a cross that was the culmination of history and then come back from the dead, not figuratively, but literally and physically come back from the dead as witnessed by literally hundreds of people that were alive in his day. And the gospels are accounts of that and they point you to what that means for the world. We started last week a journey through a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is profound. There's been more ink spilled about the Sermon on the Mount than any other part of the New Testament. And last week, we gave you an intro to this beautiful sermon. We talked about the context of Jesus's day. We tried to give you some handles so that you wouldn't just show up on Sunday morning to be spoon-fed this sermon. But we asked you in community groups and on your own between Sundays to wrestle with the words of Jesus, to sit under the words of Jesus, And today we get to open up the words of Jesus with a section of this sermon called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And I wanna say a couple of things about this before we dive in and read it. I understand the cynicism we have towards authority in our day and age. I understand it. I know that in this day and age, as postmodern people living in a world that in a lot of ways is at war with itself, I know, man, we have seen authority abused. The authority of our families was in a lot of ways in this room profoundly abused. I know that the majority of people in this room, especially if you're under 40, most of us come from broken homes. I know you've seen the authority of the home used to squash authority that was supposed to be present and formative for you to help you experience secure attachment instead make you feel unsafe in the world. Beyond the home, I know that the authority structures of this world have so often been used to oppress. I understand that. I see that. My eyes are open to that reality. I get that the institutions that supposedly claim to help people have often hurt people. I get that authority has been abused in the church that there have been all kinds of churches from every different denomination where there have been little pastors who try to pretend to be popes who instead of feeding the sheep have devoured the sheep. I get that, I see that, I read the same news you read. I get that we live in a moment where political authority is really hard to trust. And there are good politicians that wanna be civic servants for the common good, but there are also on both sides, left and right, so many politicians that use authority to build a platform and to simply do nothing more than maintain their own power and prestige. So if you feel gun shy about authority, welcome to the club. We live in a culture where authority has been so abused and misused that it's hard to trust anybody that makes an authority claim. And with that, Understanding, I get that the authority claims in the Sermon on the Mount are breathtaking. Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, the prophet to end all prophets. Jesus, the philosopher to surpass all philosophers. Jesus, who came 
as a lamb and as a lion. Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords in this sermon, is opening his mouth and he's giving a foundational document to his people, to his church, to his disciples that is just dripping with authority claims. It's dripping, it's dripping with radical, no-holds-barred authority claims in which Jesus is claiming to not just be a way or a truth or a version of the good life. Jesus is saying, I am life, and this is the way you walk with me. And I understand, man, I understand that in every generation, if you went back to the 1950s that was less cynical about authority, we still would kick against the sermon because human beings want to be our own authority. What I want you to wrestle with as we read this text is not just the authority claim that Jesus makes about walking out discipleship, not just the authority claim he makes about his version of the good life that's so different than our good life versions, whether you're progressive and trying to find the good life through renegotiating morality, breaking down tradition, working for justice, working for diversity, or if you're on the right, working for the good life through free market capitalism, through the pursuit of security, through family values. What Jesus does in this sermon is he deconstructs all kinds of versions of the good life that actually aren't working for us. What I want you to get is that in our particular moment, what we need more than anything is freedom from the authority of self. We need a better king than self because self is not leading us to flourishing. Whether you're on the right or on the left is kind of irrelevant because in the middle, we all have in common this crazy idea that we can self-author our lives, that we can find the good life on our own terms and that following our heart is gonna lead to more happiness. And the truth is the more we walk down that road, the more exhausted and anxious and fractured we've become. So in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't divorce the authority claims of the one that's speaking from the person of the one who's speaking. Because he's the one king who's willing to be gobbled up for his subjects. He's the one king that's willing to actually live out what he's asking you to live out. He's the one king whose kingdom is not temporary and not threatened by political unrest and economic downturns. He's the one king whose kingdom is forever and it does not end, and his kingdom is the one kingdom that actually brings the thing that you and me are dying for in our moment. It brings peace. It brings peace. And a lot of us in our cultural moment, without having an authority higher than self that we can trust, are like sailboats without a keel. The keel is on the bottom of the boat. It keeps the boat from capsizing. It keeps the boat from drifting. And for most of us, what it feels like to be our own authority is to be a sailboat in the middle of the ocean and to have no ability to keep ourselves from being capsized when the wind and the waves hits us. So the Sermon on the Mount, make no mistake, is the most radical authority claim ever made by any person in the history of the world. 
It's more radical than the authority claims of Confucius. It's more radical than the philosophy of Aristotle. It's more intense than anything Buddha ever said. But the one that's making these claims is also the one who is vindicated as not just another teacher or prophet or philosopher, but in the resurrection, he was vindicated as the very son of God who is reality. What I want you to wrestle with today in the Beatitudes is that this authority claim, what he's saying about the good life, hasn't been tried by many of us. Because we've tried to do this weird Bible Belt Christianity where we give Jesus a room or two of the house on Sunday morning and maybe Wednesday night, but we keep whole wings of our mansion to ourselves. Jesus gets this part of my life, but not this part of my life. And that amazing Crazy self-deception has kept us from really wholeheartedly with everything that we are, just bowing our knee to Jesus and saying, teach me what's real. Teach me what's beautiful. Teach me what's good. So for the next 14 weeks or so, as we walk towards Easter, we're gonna sit under Jesus's authority claims, but you can't divorce these claims from the one that's claiming them. It is the one who is life that's showing us the way to the good life in these verses. So follow with me. This is a thing that historically has been called the Beatitudes. That just comes from a Latin word for blessing. We're going to read it and talk about what it means. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, paralytics, demon-possessed people, people in poverty, people suffering, the crowds that were gathered to Jesus, he sees them He goes up on the mountain to make authority claims, as we discussed last week. He sat down as one who was going to speak with authority. His disciples came to him as those who submit to his authority. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we talk about these claims that Jesus is making, three things that you got to keep in mind if this is going to make sense. These statements are really pregnant, and they're pregnant in three profound ways. First of all, blessed is a loaded word. Blessed is not a loaded word in 2019. Like, the word bless you means nothing in our cultural moment. Someone sneezes, we say bless you. What we really mean is next time, cover your mouth, you disgusting human being. Right? Or if you've been raised in kind of churchy Christianity, the word blessing and blessed has these saccharine, sentimental, cutesy images attached to it. Think precious moments figurines and fat baby angels. It means almost nothing. But listen, the word Jesus is using 
in a Jewish context and in a Greco-Roman context, it is loaded with meaning. To use the word blessed, in some of your Bibles, it's translated as happy, means something really deep. See, that word happy in our context means circumstances being good. We can buy our happiness in America because we think happiness is having a great experience in new genes. We think we can buy happiness because happiness is being able to go to a third-way coffee shop and then being able to go to the newest restaurant in town and buy a craft beer and have a nice meal. But happiness to the ancients didn't mean circumstances. Happiness to the ancients meant that your life actually had meaning. And what we have today is a ton of circumstances that we can control if we have money, at least for a little while. But what we don't have as Americans is a sense of meaning that helps us suffer on the dark day. Happiness is to live life in alignment with reality. Happiness is to find the good life. The good life. Happiness in a Jewish context is the word shalom, which doesn't just mean peace. It means that. But shalom means everything needed for human flourishing. And I get flourishing is one of those buzzwords that everybody uses too much now. If you think about city planning or building a park or church planting, everybody just uses flourishing left and right. Like it's one of those words like missional that just doesn't mean anything anymore. But flourishing actually does mean something. It means that your life has been planted in such a way that fruit is going to come from the root of your life. In the first psalm, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, this word that Jesus uses as blessed is used to describe one who is planted as a tree of righteousness who grows up and has fruit to bless multiple generations. So this word blessing is really deep. It's really profound. You could call it flourishing. You could call it true happiness. You could call it meaning. The second thing you've got to know is that this version of flourishing is totally paradoxical. It's the opposite of what we think flourishing is. And I, I know for some of you, especially church kids that have been around this for a while, you just sort of read the Beatitudes and you don't actually read the Beatitudes. Because everything Jesus is saying is the opposite of the kind of life that we really want to live. Nobody's like, hey, sign me up for mourning. Because if you've ever really grieved somebody that you love and that you lost, mourning is not just being sad for a little while. Mourning is something that touches you down to your bones. Mourning is, is grief that's emotional and physical and spiritual. Nobody wants that life. Nobody wants to be impoverished in any way, especially poor in spirit. Like, you want me to have no righteousness of my own to boast in, no good works of my own that I can count as good? Nobody wants that life. And certainly, like, nobody walked into this room saying, I hope this week I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake. These words are really paradoxical. Jesus is holding up a version of the good life that looks like the antithesis of the world's version of the good life. And thirdly, this is pregnant because the flourishing he's describing has both a nowness and a not yetness to it. It has a nowness because Jesus came as king. Jesus is saying, hey, if you line up with me as my disciples, blessed are you, not future tense, present tense. Jesus taught through the whole book of Matthew that the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, it's here. 
There's never going to be a day where Jesus has more authority than he has today. He is alive. He's reigning. He's at the right hand of the Father. There's no name above his name. Like he's working in history. He is the Messiah. So there's a nowness to this blessing that you have in Jesus. But there's also a not yetness to it because Jesus is also pointing to a day where you're going to see the kingdom of God with your eyes and every tear is going to be wiped away. So it's loaded. It's full attention. See, what we want to do is either make all of these blessings future and not expect anything from Jesus today, or we want to make all of these blessings now and write silly books like your best life now and not have any longing for the future. What Jesus is saying is that to be a disciple is to live in this tension that the kingdom's here, it's among you. To be his brings blessing, but it brings blessing in the midst of tears and circumstances, and following Jesus doesn't mean that you get to hit the easy button and not get sick and not suffer and not get persecuted. Following Jesus looks like carrying a cross. And I know that today is Sunday and that a lot of you are going to enjoy brunch, but I'll just say this anyways. Nobody makes it out of this life alive. So there's a tension in these words, man. There's like a hopeful longing. Jesus, this is true now, but it's something I'm also believing is coming for me because I don't see it with my eyes yet. So with that in mind, let's look at these words in two ways. Two ways quickly. Jesus is on one hand describing his disciples. He's describing his disciples. He's given a character sketch of discipleship. This is what it looks like to follow the master. But listen, to be a disciple means that your life is being formed by, it's being molded by the life of the master. So these beatitudes, these blessing statements describe a disciple, but you can't describe a true disciple unless you describe the master that they follow. So the beatitudes are a character sketch of disciples that are growing and they're growing to do what? Look like Jesus. So let's look at it from both angles. Uh, I'll go quickly. Blessed disciples, what does that look like? Well, disciples are blessed because they're poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of poverty. There's economic poverty. There's social poverty. There's relational poverty, right? There's educational poverty. There's all forms of poverty that are all devastating and nuanced, but all forms of poverty have in common a lack of internal resources and a dependence for outside help to break that poverty. What Jesus is saying here is that poverty for his disciples is a specific kind. It's a poverty of spirit, meaning you don't have goodness or righteousness that you can boast in on your own. You depend on an outside righteousness or goodness if you're going to make it. Jesus described this beatitude beautifully in Luke 18. Listen to this story. Jesus told him a parable to some who trusted in themselves. So listen up if you think everything's going great in your life on your own terms because you're smart enough, good enough, or moral enough. Jesus is talking to you. He told them a parable to those who thought they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the religious elite of Jesus' day, the ones that had all the outside trappings of the law, 
and the other a tax collector, the worst people of Jesus's day. If you were a tax collector, that's not just bad because like nobody wants to pay taxes, right? This is not an IRS employee that's just doing their job. A tax collector under, under Roman rule meant that you literally were like extorting your own people to take that money and give it to an occupying regime that was killing and oppressing your own people. People hated tax collectors. And look at what happens. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This is righteousness via comparison, boasting in self. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This beatitude is essential if you're gonna be a disciple of Jesus. It means you don't trust in your goodness. You don't trust in your righteousness. It means you need external alien righteousness to rescue you from the sin and the reality of your brokenness. To be a Christian is to be humbled before God and to be lifted up in his kingdom because Jesus is the way. Jesus is your goodness and your righteousness. He goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Grief certainly seems to be the opposite of flourishing. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that his disciples are gonna live life with a sober longing for what's broken to be made right. His disciples aren't going to be naive who put on rose-colored glasses and pretend that everything's okay when it's not. And his disciples are not allowed to be cynical and shut down their hearts to what's broken in the world. What Jesus is saying is that his disciples are going to mourn for what's wrong with themselves and their family and their city and their nation and the world. Let's just stop, man. Like, Jesus' disciples know it's not God's will for women to be sold into the sex industry, and they mourn that. Jesus' disciples know that when there's distance between a husband and a wife, and they're at odds with each other, and there's pride, and there's harsh words, and there's a disconnect of intimacy, that's not God's will, and they mourn that. Jesus' disciples are to know that it's not God's will for babies to go to bed hungry, and they mourn that. This world is broken profoundly, and the comfort that they experience as mourners has to do with the fact that God promised in Jesus to make all things right through the cross and the resurrection and the eventual return of Jesus. We're to mourn with hope. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is the hardest one to understand, right? What does meek mean? One guy this week told me that when he hears the word meek, he thinks of Ned Flanders. Well, Simpsons reference, if you're not up on your Simpsons trivia, you need to get right. What does it mean though to be meek? Is that weakness? What is it? Well, it's gentleness. It's humility but it's also controlled strength. 
To be meek is to not have to grasp and control things with violence and force and power. To be meek is to inherit the earth, meaning here's I think what Jesus is saying. His disciples know if they have Jesus, they have everything, so they don't have to try to control other people through manipulation, through force, through coercion. If you have God, you have everything, so you can hold things with open hands. You can breathe. Meekness is, in a lot of ways, like a war horse who's got power and strength, but who's willing to submit to the bridle and the rider. Jesus said, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. God is righteousness. He's the one that's righteous. That's what Jesus said to a lawyer that questioned him. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means that the thing you want more than anything else is God who is righteous. St. Augustine, the great theologian and pastor, one time did this little thought experiment with his church. He said, imagine God was to come to you and tell you that you could have everything good in this world, all the money you want, you would never die, and nothing would ever be sin for you. Think about that for a second. Nothing's off limits. Everything's under your power. You can get whatever you want, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, live wherever you want. Nothing would be off limits, but you would never see God. Does that create a pang in your heart? What Jesus is saying is that his disciples see that the greatest good is not all the stuff that God made, but God who is righteous, and they thirst for him more than they thirst for food and drink. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy certainly means kindness, but he's describing disciples who are much more than just nice guys and nice gals. Because listen, you can be nice and not be merciful. Mercy is a willingness to lay down your dignity and your rights to aid someone else. Mercy is what a hospice nurse does as she lays down her dignity for one who's going through the indignities of death. Death just strips you of your dignity. Right? I mean, unless you're blessed to just go in your sleep, most of us are going to go through the loss of faculties, the loss of functions. We're going to be dependent on family and friends to do things that we're going to be embarrassed about, to clean our bodies, to feed our bodies. Mercy is what a nurse does when he or she lays down their dignity to cover the indignity of another person. That's mercy. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God This is not settling for external forms of religion that we get kudos for, but this is actually having a heart. This is having a heart that burns to know God and to fear God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Listen, being a peacemaker is not the same as being a peace lover. You can be a peace lover and zen out in your awesome cabin in the woods, your mid-century modern amazing house, and not have neighbors Being a peacemaker is not the same as being a peace lover and trying to live a tranquil life. Peacemakers are those that go towards conflict and strife with the hope of reconciliation. Peacemaking is bloody, messy work. 
He says at the end, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the most paradoxical of all these. Like, happy are you, flourishing are you when people revile you and reject you for the sake of Jesus. Blessing and happiness and goodness is yours if you get killed for the sake of Jesus. And this is a little bit difficult in our context because we don't live in a culture where there's outright persecution of Christians. Right? Going to Dillard's during Christmas season and someone telling you happy holidays is not the same as persecution. I get that. And the clerk may be a jerk and they may not understand that Christmas is kind of what the holiday season is. But listen, what Jesus told his disciples is, a servant's not above the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So here's what he's saying. There's no way to be a disciple of Jesus and follow these beatitudes by the grace of God, in the power of God, as you walk with Jesus and not have people baffled and repulsed by you. Because all these beatitudes are the opposite of what everybody thinks is the good life. So if you're going to follow Jesus, what that means is you're going to have some family members reject you and not get you. If you really follow Jesus, you're going to have some friends reject you. You're going to have some coworkers reject you. If you really follow Jesus, there's a good chance that at some point in your life, you're not going to get the promotion. To follow Jesus is to live so differently in the world that some people are going to be violently opposed to you and your obedience of Christ while others are intrigued are going to, and they're going to ask you about the hope you have within you. But let's stop. Because the wrong thing to do at this point would be to leave this room and say, okay, I'm gonna go in my own strength and try to figure out how to mourn and be poor in heart and be merciful. And I'm gonna go look for persecution, which is not something you're ever supposed to do. So what do you do with these beatitudes? Well, here's what you do. You see that disciples are simply reflectors of their master. And to really follow Jesus and really obey Jesus is to realize that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all of these beatitudes and to be in Christ by grace and to follow Christ by grace is for you to slowly but surely become more like Christ by grace. Let me put it to you like this. Think of these beatitudes quickly. Jesus is the most poor in spirit of anyone that's ever lived. He's not poor in spirit because he lacks righteousness, but he's poor in spirit because he is completely and totally submitted to and dependent upon his father. What does it mean to be the only begotten son of God? Well, that gets into the mystery of this thing called the Trinity. Not three gods, one God and three persons for all eternity. I don't even know how to fully wrap my head around that. But listen, Jesus the son is begotten of the father, which means in the very person of the son, there's a submission to and a delighting in the person of the Father. In Jesus' earthly ministry, what did he say? He said, hey, you know, I never do anything unless it's what I see the Father doing. I never say anything unless it's what I hear the Father saying. Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus is the one that mourns. 
Isaiah the prophet described Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That wasn't his own sorrow for sin in his own life he was grieving. It was that he came to earth to set to right what's wrong and he grieved the state of this world. Scripture tells us that he grieved at the people's hardness of heart. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But he was struck by the injustice of death. That's not God's original plan for humanity. And he wept because his friend died. Jesus mourned over the lostness of his city, Jerusalem. He said in a woe, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. How long I've wanted to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you were unwilling. Jesus mourns and weeps. And he does so in the comfort of the presence and power of the Spirit, knowing things are not what they should be, but he came to make all things right. Jesus is the most meek person that's ever lived. He was so secure in the Father's love, he didn't grasp and grip. He didn't try to control everything. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Jesus took on flesh, the Son of God became man. The Bible tells us, he didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to clutch onto. The son was equal with the father, of equal in value, dignity, and worth, but he didn't cling to that. He was meek and emptied himself becoming a servant. Meekness is Jesus before Pilate, right? Crazy, stupid, arrogant Pilate looks at Jesus who made everything by the word of his power and he says to Jesus, the son of God, don't you know I have authority to release you or to kill you? And Jesus in meekness says, you have no authority except what's been given to you from above. Meekness is when Peter wilds out and draws a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, brother, put away your sword. Don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down 10,000 legions of angels and raiders of the lost ark, melt the faces off of these people? Jesus is the clearest example ever of restrained strength. Jesus is the one that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He wants the will of the Father above everything. After 40 days of fasting, the devil's like, turn that bread, turn that stone into bread. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the Father. I hunger for the Father. Jesus' disciples come to Jesus. He's talking to a woman that's been trading sex for rent for decades, and Jesus is just loving her and serving her instead of eating, and his disciples are like, What's going on? And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus is not just merciful. Look at me, because this is good news if you're messed up. Jesus is not just merciful. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is the one that laid down dignity for the people that had lost their dignity more than anybody that's ever lived in the history of the world. He did it in the incarnation You talk about suffering in dignity. How about being God and having to be sustained at the breast of a human mother that you created? How about having your diaper changed by hands that you formed? On the cross, Jesus hung between two thieves. The one person that has never deserved punishment hung between two thieves, and to be crucified was to lose all dignity. That's why they did it. Romans invented crucifixion to not just give you physical pain, 
but to strip your dignity as a human. Jesus was naked. He probably lost control of his bodily functions in front of his own mother. He did all that. He lost his dignity. He laid down his dignity to bring mercy to people that had no dignity, you and me. Jesus is the peacemaker. He's the prince of peace. He's the one that brought peace between man and God through his cross. He's the one that brings peace to man and man through his cross. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. You're all one in Jesus. That's peacemaking. Jesus was the one who was persecuted. Persecuted by his own people. Persecuted by Rome. Persecuted in a corrupt, fake travesty of a religious trial and an equally corrupt travesty of a civil trial. Persecuted by his friend Judas that sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Persecuted by his friend Peter that denied him three times. Like, the point is this. All of these beatitudes are describing what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus but more than that, they're describing what it looks like to see Jesus. And to see Jesus and follow Jesus is slowly over time to be formed to look like Jesus. To walk with him and to obey him will mean that you're being formed to look like him. And that's why the next section is not disconnected to the Beatitudes. In light of the Beatitudes, Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say, hey guys, really try to be salt, really try to be light. This is an identity statement. He's saying, you are salt, you are light if you're really my disciples because formation in Christ equals bringing the salty brightness of Jesus to the world because you're gonna look more like Christ. So what I wanna do as we close today, I want us to pray I want us to pray that Christ would be formed in us. That's the prayer that Paul the Apostle prayed the most for the churches that he oversaw and loved and served. He prayed that Christ would be formed in them. What will it look like if Christ is formed in you? Hear me, like we're closing, but don't check out. You know what it'll look like if Christ is formed in you? It'll look like poverty of spirit. It'll look like mourning. It'll look like meekness. It'll look like peacemaking. It'll look like persecution. Why would you want all that? Because Christ is true flourishing. And the good life is not having all the stuff in the world and not having Jesus. The good life is having Jesus and going to look more like Jesus. Being a part of his kingdom forever. This is a moment to not waste your life but to bow your knee to Jesus, Christians and non-Christians alike, to receive the call of Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus. Because he said, crazy authority claims, but he also said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden, find rest for your souls because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Meaning, the only way to freedom is not being your own authority. The only way to freedom is when you stop being your own authority.